Welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a psychotherapist and improvisational theater teacher in Naples, Florida. And this podcast is all about interesting folks who are using improvisation in therapy as well as in other areas, such as our esteemed guest today, Robert Corcoran, who is a member of the famous comedy sports improv team, but he's also the founder of Parkinson's Place. And we're going to talk more about that Parkinson's In life with Robert today. Hi, Robert. Hi. Hi. I'm terrific, and we're going to do the best with the sound that we can today. Okay. So let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born, and how was your childhood? Sure. Seattle, Washington was uh, the home ground where mom and dad uh, also were born and raised, but I only lived there for about five years until uh, dad took a job down in the Bay Area, and that's where uh, I really uh, grew up my formative years in uh, uh, what was a little town called Walnut Creek, and it's now a pretty chic place. Uh, so that that was the uh, the early years. Uh, spent most of the years after that in California, uh, undergrad and graduate work, San Diego State and UCLA, until making my way out to Las Vegas in about 2000, and uh, this is where I am. So what did you study in college? So the undergrad years were about radio TV broadcast. I really wanted to be an ESPN guy. That was uh, the burgeoning uh, show, a sports center, the, an athlete all my life and just loved uh, playing as long as I could. Once I could no longer keep up, I wanted to go ahead and talk about it. So uh, after meeting some of the folks in the industry, though, uh, and, and knowing that the news was heading in a 24-hour cycle, it really changed reporting. I said, I don't think I like this because I really like the storytelling element of sports. Uh, more of the focus as opposed to uh, the repetition and going after pieces of, uh, of stories that I guess were less interesting to me, more tabloidish. And that led me into filmmaking. That's why I went to UCLA for that work. And, uh, you know, that, that work uh, eventually got me into to documentary film work. Beautiful. And did, were you an actor as a kid? Did you do any acting in high school or... College. Not really. You know, I was more more focused on athletics. In, in my mind's eye, I was definitely I was going to be a pro athlete. I wanted to, I wanted to play for the Denver Broncos, still my my favorite team, and uh, that didn't work out. So uh, as a, as a lark, though, my senior year in high school, I had some friends who were taking drama, and I said I, I need an elective. I'll take this, and uh, I absolutely fell in love with it. And. Thought, thought it was great. Still didn't think there would be any career from it. Uh, it wasn't until. You know, my, my final semester, again, of my undergraduate uh, career, four years later, that on a lark, I needed another class. I took a screenwriting class, and I said, oh, I, I kind of like this. So, uh, you know, not even realizing, you know, movies actually do need someone to write them. I always thought about the directors and the actors, but never really put much thought into the screenwriting process. And, and once I started doing it, I fell in love with that. By the time I got up to L.A., there was a, a two-year bridge. I worked on cruise ships, and I met a lot of entertainers. So, yeah, there were dancers and comics and musicians, and I really, really enjoyed meeting them and doing whatever I could to make my way into their shows and some little walk-on bit <laughs> week by week when they'd come on, and definitely bitten by the bug at that point. And when I got to Los Angeles, uh, my first hit for the stage was to try stand-up comedy, and I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It was a very small uh, endeavor because it was about uh, the coffee house scene as it was in the 90s. And uh, we'd go around doing three to seven minute sets and enjoyed it, but also found that the success I was having, 
the voice I was developing was very cynical. I was getting laughs uh, for, for being that type of character. And I, you know, I, I don't think I was a strong enough voice to realize I can change this into something else. I just said, if I keep writing this jokes in order to be successful, I'm not going to like the person I become. So I, uh, I transitioned into doing uh, theater and, and improv came up around that time. And, you know, I'd done it in high school, but this was a new level. And once I saw comedy sports in the 90s, I said, okay, that's a whole other thing. So that's where that went. Great. And so you were hooked at your first uh, improv class or you took some in high school, but you weren't totally hooked until you, as an adult you took some. Where was your first class? Do you remember? So I took class uh, in, in college uh, at El Camino College, junior college. I was there uh, a bit of a lark, uh, you know, because the comics said, hey, try improv. And I said, okay, this is a cheap way in. And the professor, a guy named Ron Scarlatti, was a really great guy. And they had a very good theater program uh, for a junior college. And back then it cost 13 bucks a unit. So what are you going to do, right? They're giving it away. And he took us uh, as a field trip to a comedy sports match. And again, seeing the combination of sports with improvisation gave me a little bit of an intro. It's like, oh, wait a minute, there, there's, there's a place for me here. My, my voice, my background works together here because here is competitive improvisational comedy. To, to play within that motif, I know the sports world inside out, that's no problem. And now we're gonna layer on this improvisation thing? Yeah, let, let's make that happen. So it was a, it was a very nice fit. Um, I didn't end up doing comedy sports kind of strangely enough at that time. I pursued the groundlings because that was much more considered the professional trying to get an agent thing. But yeah. So did you ever get into comedy sports as a player though? Not at that time. They, they kept asking me to take classes because I told them I was interested. But uh, my agent and others uh, said, oh, no, you really want to do uh, you want to do Groundlings or Acme. There were big names at the time in order to, you know, everyone's trying to get a sitcom. And everything was, now I look back on it seeming, it sounds foolish to me, very linear based. You know, it's like I'm going to do this to get this instead of I'm going to do this to experience that. So that was my experience with improv at the time. And until many years later, uh, I had a little bit of a bitter taste uh, leaving that because Groundlings was not a good fit for me. So, you know, we, you talked to my uh, friend in comedy sports, but you eventually didn't you? Playing comedy sports. So you're, I'm sorry, I missed a little bit of what you said there. I you, you my colleague, Craig Price, who played in comedy sports, but you eventually did play in comedy sports, right? Are you doing that now or? I am doing that now. It's a long journey to have gotten there. I tried in 2009 to get the license here in Las Vegas to play. Because previously, uh, the, the in-between was, I was uh, playing performing uh, with the Second City when they were out here. Uh, not as much main stage with them, but I was working my way up and took a lot of classes and was you know on the, the, the verge with them. When they pulled up roots and left Las Vegas, it left a huge void. There was a lot of uh, improvisers who went from, oh, there's this professional outlet here in town to now we're all kind of running around going, what are we gonna do with this stuff we've learned? I tried to get the license to have comedy sports in Las Vegas, but it wasn't available. And it wasn't until another eight years later, honestly, after a couple runs through a master's degree and some corporate world work where I had been using improvisation just on my own, seeing this is good stuff, um, to where I said, I'm going to try to get the license again. And in 2017, when I called them back, they remembered me kindly enough and said, yeah, we really liked your proposal. It just wasn't available, but now it is. And so, yes, in 2017, 
we, we started the process and in 2018, we were granted the license. We've been playing for a little over a year here in Las Vegas. Terrific. Now, some of my listeners may not be as familiar as we are with improv history. And by the way, I think I know some of the people that you might have taught with at Second City back then, because I've interviewed some of them. But can you tell us what comedy sports is and how it might be a little different from improvisational theater? And there's so many different schools of improv today, too. So can right. you share a little bit about that? So comedy sports is, by nature, they call it competitive improvisational comedy. There's a referee, there's a red and a blue team. Everything is sports themed. It's an arena, not a theater. It's a field, not a stage. Uh, All these things, they're they're loyal fans, not an audience. We want everything to feel like someone's going to the ball game or to a hockey game or whatever it is, that energy. There's an announcer and it's completely family friendly too. Now that, that doesn't mean that it's for kids alone, but we make sure we play to all ages. There are fouls, one of which is the brown bag foul. If anyone says anything crude, lewd, lascivious, ugly, they get called for that and have to wear a brown bag on their head for the remainder of the game. Same goes for the loyal fans. Again, that keeps the brand very much all ages, which is important to us. So yes, they're short form games and people may be familiar with them uh, from seeing them in Whose Line Is It Anyway or other forms. But the manner in which they're played in the form of comedy sports in a match, there's a first half, a second half, a halftime, you know, the way they're played, that's where it's dynamic. It's different. It's not just a bunch of random games put together that the way these games are stacked and that the points that that are earned along the way do matter and that people feel that competitive spirit going on up on stage. uh, That's what makes the that's what makes it a magical and, and different experience. Now, is there any connection between the original Improv Olympics and comedy sports? Not directly. The founder of uh, comedy sports, Dick Chudnow, uh, he started this in 1984 in Milwaukee. And yes, he had some connection to other improv theaters. Um, he, He certainly was aware of them and played with theater sports and others. But this was his brainchild, and he said he's going to do it differently. And again, really focusing on that all-ages market in a very digestible form uh, that, that plays fast, funny, and for everyone. Well, let's bring us up to date now with Parkinson's Place. And tell me a little bit about Parkinson's Place, because, you know, this is a subject near and dear to myself as well. Sure. So I'm the co-founder of uh, Parkinson's Place out here and a board member. We are a 501c3, and we decided to to form a group, a bunch of us who had uh, met each other here in Las Vegas, all with various Parkinson's stories, including mine, of course, my dad being diagnosed for 18 years, to see what we could do if we worked together, knowing that the community had a need here, but didn't have a central base to call Uh, its own to say, this is where we're going to get our information. This is how we're going to work together to share and pool resources. And so about two years ago, we got together and uh, we we started working to, we did a movement fair. That was our first thing. And one of our our founders is a Rocksteady boxing owner. And so that's one of our partners. Another one works for the Lou Rubo Center, the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, which is a fantastic uh, center and resource for all sorts of brain clinic uh, activity. And I work with UNLV and others work with uh, Davis Finney Foundation. So we brought all that together. And at that first movement fair, people said, okay, we like what you're doing. You've given us a hub. And we slowly built that and have worked with the Parkinson's Foundation, doing work with them. Now they've come to town 
and have started to develop a, a decent name. We're heading into our third annual movement fair in January, and that'll be at Zappos, which is really exciting. Zappos, the, uh, the mega online retailer, has a division that uh, works with people who uh, have special needs for their wardrobe. So that, that's very much a fit for their culture and they're very much community-based as we are too. So to be moving up the ranks so quickly, uh, Jimmy Choi, uh, who you may know is the American Ninja Warrior is gonna be our, our speaker. Wow. Yeah, Dr. Mari of the Cleveland Clinic and Lou Ruo Center, he will also be speaking. So we've done some really fun things. We, we had Tim Hay last year, uh, who you may have seen in the, um, oh gosh, what's the show? Uh, the, it's the adventure show where they go across, uh, is on CBS um, in two-person teams. I'm forgetting the title. Oh, forgive me, Tim. <laughs> he had a great story. Him and his son went on that together and, and did quite well. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been a growing force, the Parkinson's Place Las Vegas is, and uh, we're, we're doing some very good things. And so what are some of the things you're doing there? So the main focuses have been on, on getting the public active. So Rocksteady Boxing and uh, Movement Day, and we have cycling uh, events. We uh, now, of course, are doing the improv workshops as well. That's become a dynamic part of the community trying to elevate some things that, that are there traditionally, but may feel flat, in particular support groups. We often hear the complaint that people say they get too negative, that they are about uh, just griping. And so we try to add activity and sometimes these improv games into those types of settings, not as a performance thing, but really to get people communicating at a higher level with each other. Exactly, exactly. Now, who's teaching some of the, the support groups or those um, people with PD or other people? Who do you have in doing the support groups for you? So uh, one of them is our social worker from the Cleveland Clinic, Ruth Almain. She's wonderful. Uh, she does a lot of work in that regard. And Sydney Donahue is also another one. She is a, a person with Parkinson's. Her and her husband are very active together. And uh, they, they are the ones who are ambassadors for the Davis Finney Foundation. So they run some of the support groups here in town. So of course I'm interested in your improv classes. So tell me about your improv classes. Are they day longs? Are they several weeks? How do you structure your improv classes? And do you have people? Well, that's my first question. I'll ask the second question after you answer that. <laughs> sure, so we're just getting started with those. The plan is to have them once a week and not only to have them for people with Parkinson's, but also for the care partners and the wellness and medical providers. I think that's a really key element. Uh, I've taken a class for myself in the care partner group and that's great. And I think it's good to have maybe some that are just for maybe uh, people with Parkinson's or care partners, but I really wanna have a, a class that includes everyone because what I want people to do is learn how to take these communication skills and use them together. Because I know for my dad, there's a real gap between himself and his doctors traditionally. I have to advocate for him a lot. And it's not all based on the doctors, mind you. My dad has his own communication issues that are somewhat personality-based and somewhat Parkinson's-based. But by getting these skills, by becoming more confident, by learning how to use improvisation to express yourself and you know maybe, maybe get a quick laugh or something that humanizes the interaction as opposed to a pure clinical thing, which can feel quite intimidating when you're feeling already uh, vulnerable or you're feeling like something's been taken from you, that what, what improv does, as you know, is it helps bring you into the moment really quickly and beautifully. So this is where I want people to have those techniques at their disposal. And so you're including medical personnel as well, you said. 
I think it's very important, yeah, to get to get the doctors, hopefully. And, and so far, they've been very interested um, externally, and not that they're against playing, but that's going to be part of my learning process. Say, guess what? I need you in the sandbox, too. We've got to play these games. You've got to show your vulnerability to them as well. And I have a theory that I think if I can teach doctors just the simple mirroring game, the you know one of the foundations of uh, improvisation, and teach them to use that at the front end of their their clinical meetings. So it's not hi, how are you doing? What's wrong? But it's sit down, don't say a word, and let's just connect for one minute even. And I think that would change the interaction dramatically. So too. So um, in my classes, my classes are Parkinsonians and people with MSA and other neurocognitive disorders, as well as care partners. And um, some of our members are confined to a wheelchair or a walker. And do you have population like that? So, and kind of what kind of games do you play with them when they can't get up and find a partner or move too easily? Sure. And certainly uh, in the spirit of comedy sports is how I you know, teach uh, improv to improve as well. It's for everyone. So yes, no matter where you are on the honing yard scale, you are welcome to play. And the, the games for the people who are less mobile, uh, mirroring is, is one of them. Uh, try that on for size is another one. I don't know if you've ever played that one before, uh, where you, you basically you start by doing some simple action. It can be just like, you know, you're, you're, you're casting a fishing pole and you say, I'm casting a fishing pole, try that on for size. And the next person does the same action, but calls it something else says, I'm chopping down a tree, try that on for size. And it's a beautiful mental exercise, but with that simple physical interaction, you, you change the reality. And I love that. I love changing reality and seeing how many things can we make out of this. Mind putty is another one where, you know, you just, you take uh, space work and you create something as if you had putty in your hand into a shape and then you use it and then you pass that thing to the next person where he or she will have to use it in the same way and then shape it into something else. And at the end of the round, people go around and try to guess what all those items were. So paying attention to each other in those various ways, there's a lot of games we can do that don't require standing or don't require uh, you know, being mobile uh, beyond a chair. And I find facial exercises, we do one called show, don't tell, show your expression on your face. And then people will copy that and really get them to imitate that. So we get using the muscles and also using the vocal cords. Speech, speech completely, but volume in speech is another Parkinson issue. And so getting them to, and singing games, I like to do singing games too, because that's a lot of fun. Absolutely. I think all of those are fantastic. I think one of the things you hit on that really interested me there too was the emotional component. Um, I know Alan Alda's work, he talks a lot about that. And I, I started to incorporate a bit of that too. And I love what you just said in mirroring emotions like that and identifying. We often just, we, we don't even acknowledge each other's emotions as we talk to each other. We, we you know, try to get to what we have to say or on to the next thing, as opposed to just stopping and saying, you appear angry right now, or you appear elated at the moment, or you appear confused. That simple acknowledgement lets the other person know that you're listening. And that it sounds simple, but how often do we blow past those things in interactions? Absolutely. And has your group ever reached performance, but it's nice to do a showcase or something like that now and then? Have you ever done a showcase? So we have not yet done a showcase, but that's certainly going to be part of what we do. 
I don't know if I mentioned it to you before. We've talked previously, obviously. But um, one thing, another goal of this would be to develop something in the vein of uh, you've probably seen, I'm guessing, or, or have heard of uh, the vagina monologues, uh, the series of monologues that uh, women did for that, that great production. I'd love to do something called My Funny Parkinson's, where stories can be told from various angles by people with Parkinson's to help people understand how many different ways people experience having that and then make it a, you know, an ongoing production so people could could take it and use it however they wanted to, wherever they wanted to, to let people know uh, the, the many shades it comes in, the many ways it affects their lives, and not just for people with Parkinson's, but for a doctor, for a care partner, to tell, to flesh out the whole story, and ultimately to find humor within it, even in the dark spaces. That, I, that has been one of my dad's great coping mechanisms, and certainly for me too, as I've experienced um, this from my perspective. I just find that type of humor is extremely healing and helpful and, and keeping a positive and, and hopeful outlook. And you mentioned your father and talking to doctors and in Parkinson's, it's really important that they find a movement specialist. And in some areas like our area in Naples, Florida, we don't even have a movement specialist, but because there's Parkinson-like diseases that may look like Parkinson's, but they're not. So that's an important thing. And your doctor, your, your doctor, your doctor, your husband, your my mother, my daughter, um, your father, uh, over the years, has he developed, seen other doctors in terms of talking about his Parkinson's and had testing and all that good stuff? He certainly has and has had a mixed uh, experience with doctors. A couple of his early neurologists, I, I still tell the stories of being extremely frustrated, probably uh, one of the reasons I'm doing this work. Uh, one of his first meetings with a neurologist, he was told, uh, well, you're going to be in a wheelchair in six months or 30 years, but you're going to be in a wheelchair. What a wonderful way to introduce somebody to Parkinson's, right? That, that type of doom and gloom. And in uh, 2014, around then, my dad had been told, basically, we have nothing for you but pain pills at this point. And again, that defeatist attitude uh, that, that just forced us to basically, you know, say, we're not going to we're not going to sit around and go in a corner and die quietly. We're going to go ahead and fight uh, with everything we have. So thankfully, I think as of recently, my dad's got a much more progressive movement specialist. And I'm, I'm going to meet her this Friday. I'm speaking up in the, the Bay Area to share some of this information with uh, his uh, the, the group that he is with, the support group. And I'll get to meet his new uh, movement specialist. So, yeah, we've seen a variety of things. We've tried a lot of holistic medicine, too, along the way as well. Um, with various uh, outcomes. Some, some of it's known, some of it's not, because a lot of it wasn't done with a very scientific approach, but it's hard for us to say what exactly had a positive effect on dad's Parkinson's, because in the grand scheme, uh, being diagnosed for 18 years, he's doing pretty well. That's fantastic. Well, although it's not considered a therapy as yet, improv is certainly therapeutic. And I've done little brief studies showing a decrease in anxiety and depression and improved communication. There's limited research out there right now. Are you, because you're involved with several well-known people, are you doing any research yet? That's right. So that's the main reason I went back to get uh, my, my PhD at UNLV. Um, I'm working right now in the kinesiology department. And um, early in the journey, just finished my first semester, but it was successful. And uh, the idea is to do exactly that, to follow up on uh, Danny Began Northwestern and Second City's study that was done a few years ago. That was a pilot study. 
It gave us some wonderful qualitative research and a real beacon to follow. And I'm working hard with uh, some, some researchers right now to see if we can develop some quantitative measures that have been done in similar types of fields and see if we can show the effect similarly through improv on its effect of Parkinson's. And I think if we can get a little bit of quantitative data, yes. that might change uh, the way people look at improvisation. Absolutely, and, and if you get some, maybe you can share it with me. I've been using things like the Beck Depression and the Beck Anxiety Scale, which right. are okay, but there's better ways of testing pre and post classes, I think, because our classes run for about six weeks. So um, you're a filmmaker, a documentary maker as well, and I, I enjoy so much. Can you speak about the Boys of Summer and what it is and what it's going to be? Sure. So Boys of Summer is a documentary series. Uh, it started off in 2004 with Dad and I uh, road tripping 20,000 miles in two months to see a game at each of the 30 major league ballparks together. And that was based on a dream we had. Dad uh, started to take me to ballparks in 1990 and 91 as he saw I was growing up getting near the end of college. And this was his way of saying, let's, you know, I want to stay close to you even as you're growing up. And you know, that was great. We never finished the journey at the time, went to seven ballparks in two years. And he was diagnosed in 2001. So that little, little immediacy underneath us. And in 2004, I rewatched Field of Dreams and bawled my eyes out, realizing the father-son uh, conundrum in there. And I said, I don't want that to be our story. So we hit the road and we did that. And we, in fact, visited the Field of Dreams halfway through and had a catch in right field. It was amazing. And uh, so that was supposed to be a one and done film because at the time, the uh, battle cry, in fact, I was just rereading Michael J. Fox's book, uh, Lucky Man. He said, the cure within 10 years. That was everybody's call. Well, 10 years after 2004, uh, no cure, of course, was about. And dad still wanted to, uh, to do the best he could, but he was feeling down. Um, I was a father. I became a father by that point. So now he was a grandfather. And he said, I said, dad, wh what's giving you hope in your life? What are you striving for? You know, he says, well, I really want to see my grandkids grow up. And I was like, okay. So that was when we decided to, uh, you know, we went on the second part of the journey. People kept asking, how is your dad? Because they loved him so much from the first movie. He's funny, uh, he's engaging and, and very courageous. And so I said, well, instead of tell you how he's doing, let's show you. So we went on that journey, which was much more introspective. We spent a lot of time in the holistic uh, doctor's office, uh, basically exploring the quality of life issues, transitioning from the promise of the cure and some bitterness about the fact that it didn't happen as we had hoped into, well, there's still something I can do with the quality of life. And that's what we decided to do was to seek out the different ways that people live well over a long period. And uh, that, that was the second film. So now we're into shortstop which in this film, we started to say, okay, we've done the introspective. We're going to start looking at how communities across the country are doing great things, including the work you're doing. Uh, we want to let people know that there are lots of modalities and just spread the message of hope and community, the importance and power of that so that we can do things. And it's not just the same message only of the cure, which God love the scientists who are doing it and I wish them well. I want to focus on the people who aren't scientists and, and are trying to do the best of daily life and say, here's how you can live your life better by taking control, by exercising, by getting out of isolation, by engaging in humor, by, by telling yourself that you're going to do the best with what you have. So that's really what Shortstop does. And uh, it transitions into uh, the fourth film, which will largely be about 
all this work, the clinical research uh, of legitimizing improv as a an actual, as you said, therapeutic uh, element for Parkinson's. And if we fail, then I guess part four will be a, a film that shows that. But if we succeed, <laughs> well, let's hope that we really succeed. And your dad is wonderful. The films are beautiful that I've seen so far. They're very touching and, and just beautiful. And keeping that sense of humor is so important because I know with my dad, despite everything, he had a great sense of humor and he actually ended up with Louis Body. So he had a, a different kind of state of being. But it, he was always able to have a great sense of humor and that laughter, we know physiologically, emotionally, how important that laughter is. So, um, and yep. so you have a family and your son, one son, two sons? I have a son and a daughter. They are 10 and eight respectively, Giuseppe and Francesca. Oh, beautiful names. And does, do they both like baseball? Yeah, they, they certainly, they, they love the baseball experience. Uh, I'll say that, that they've gone to a, a good number of games. And, and I've been able to take Giuseppe in particular uh, to some games uh, with my dad, uh, where he has gotten <laughs> the uh, King's treatment as a fan. Things that uh, you wouldn't believe, including well, one example, we went to San Diego uh, to see a ball game there. And I had read a book of another um set of friends who went to all 30 major league parks and they talked about how they met uh, or contacted the uh, the concessionaires before they got there and they got a ton of free food and, and drink and i said how did i not think of that on our trip of course because we enjoyed some ballpark food but not nearly what these guys got well i can i contacted the folks in san diego they loved our story and they hooked us up with the uh, the head chef a guy named carlos chef carlos um, who runs all the food and drink in san diego he took us to nine different food stations in six and a half innings. We didn't sit down to watch the game until the seventh inning. <laughs> we were eating and drinking the whole time. And Petco has this unbelievable uh, array of food and drinks. And uh, that, that's just one of the experiences we've had. So, yeah, they're, they're fans. <laughs> and did, did you ever have, a, like, a favorite? Like, in my growing up was the original Yankee Stadium because I'm from the Northeast. And did you ever have a stadium that you just really loved or felt so special in? Well, I hope it doesn't offend you as a Yankee fan too much, but Red Sox Fenway Stadium, uh, Fenway Park is, uh, is just unbelievable in terms of the nostalgic feeling. I mean, I'd say Fenway and Wrigley, because of their age and their history, and that's one of the things we certainly feel as a bit of a historian of the game, you can't buy history, right? So the longer you keep the thing, the more it builds. Now, that's always fighting against uh, the, the world that wants to suck these things into oblivion, make them uncomfortable or unusable parks. But the ones who can hang in there, they get the benefit of what happened there before, the ghosts of the past, the smells. And we've seen some of those parks before they got uh, destroyed. I saw Tiger Stadium back in 1990. I saw uh, Fulton County, um, the old, old Milwaukee Stadium was amazing. Although we saw the chicken wire uh, poking through the concrete, it was falling apart, but it was amazing. So yeah, I'd say uh, Fenway number one, uh, the hidden gem is Pittsburgh. People don't talk about PNC enough. It's a beautiful place. Oh, it is a beautiful stadium. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I haven't been to, to New Yankee. I liked old Yankee. And as a matter of fact, the, um, the, our tour guide was, it was Dan Marino's nephew, Dan Marino, the football player. He was the tour guide uh, for the Yankees <laughs> at the time. He, uh, he told exactly the story that we were telling, just saying, you know, we're not told Memorial Park in center field, which I don't know what they have in New Yankee, but, you know, he's just saying it's the ghosts of the past that make the Yankees somehow keep winning. This is in 2004 when they were, you know, rolling along pretty well. 
and having some amazing comebacks. So, um, you know, that, that's what, that's one thing baseball has for it is its history. It doesn't move as fast uh, or flash the way that uh, basketball and football do, but for the relationship standpoint or, or the conversation standpoint, there's nothing like going to a baseball game together. What a beautiful journey you had. Wonderful. Maybe you'll do another one. So what's on your plate now? What's coming up in your life, Robert? So the main thing, of course, is the ongoing study with uh, UNLV and uh, hopefully uh, broadening that within the research and, and working with the Lou Rubo Center. That's the plan right there. Uh, that's immediate. I'm also uh, doing work on the, the third film, Shortstop, uh, Boys of Summer. We're going to have a, a really big uh, blowout in April for Parkinson's Awareness Month, where Comedy Sports has made Parkinson's Foundation its national charity for 2020. So at least 20 out of the 30 teams are, are already committed to at minimum having a show, maybe having a, a improv workshop, and even possibly having a screening of shortstop as well. So we'll be doing some big stuff across the country at that time. The goal for shortstop, because that'll be a, kind of a sneak preview, it'll, it'll be pretty close to being done, but it might be a little rough, is Father's Day 2020 it'll be released on Amazon. And this will be the first time I'll have a true wide release. We've done oh. some variation of that, but to make it, it's always been about getting it to people simply. And thankfully Amazon has made it easy enough at this point to where we can do that. And if you just have to click to download it, then it's going to be something where I think we'll get a lot of views. So that's the plan for 2020. It's beautiful. Of course, April is National Parkinson's month. And right. so beautiful timing. Well, I appreciate your time so much. I really do. And you're doing such incredible uh, work out there. I'm just envious of you. I wish I could come visit Vegas and see what you're doing. Um, but I just so admire what you're doing. And I know from my experience with my dad that it's a passion that we have. It's, it's beyond, you know, the theater and the other things. It's, it's a passion we have because these are such brave people. That, that's exactly right. And, and just to back up to say, hey, I love what you're doing and I look forward to hopefully meeting you soon. And as I said, I want to make you part of the next documentary as well. Your work's fantastic and very inspirational. So thank you. Thank you. Well, we'll see each other at the movies, I guess. And <laughs> uh, thank you again and we'll keep in touch. And I hope everybody goes to your site and learns more about Parkinson's Place and of course the movies, which I'll be promoting as well with this podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you, Margo. Okay, bye-bye. Bye now. Um,